We're going to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Last week, we began a new sermon series in the book of Acts entitled Witnesses. R.C. Sproul, I read this quote last week. He says, the theme of Acts is this. The church's obedience to Christ's commission and commandment to be his witnesses as the ascended king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. The theme of Acts is the church's obedience to the Lord's sending to be his witnesses. Last week we saw at the end of our passage, at the beginning of chapter 1, we saw that the Lord sends the apostles as witnesses to Jerusalem, and he does so that they would wait on his promise. It's crucial. And the Lord then ascends to reign over his church from his heavenly throne from which he establishes his kingdom by means of these many witnesses. Now this week we see Jesus shepherding his church. We see him shepherding his church through the word as they wait faithfully for his promise. So let me ask you this question. What does it look like? What does it look like functionally for the Lord to shepherd his church? We often say that the Lord is the chief shepherd or lead pastor of Cross Point Coast. We get that from the Bible. It says it in 1 Peter. If that is true, what does that look like functionally on the ground? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26 this morning. Then they, that is the disciples, the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled with the spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time when the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry 
an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Lord God, we are in need of you this morning. We've already confessed it. We continue to do so. Particularly, we are in need of your word. I pray that you would give us a recall to what we've just read. That we would not be fools who walk away and forget that you would give us insight into your word, that you would give us understanding, and that you would give us what is necessary for faith. That we would not only understand, but we would know how to walk in with joy what you would teach us this morning. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this. In the name of Jesus. This morning I have two things I'd like to share from you. I think that they are uh, in this passage for us, and we're going to allow the passage in many ways to establish the outline for us as we look at it almost uh, word by word through the passage this morning. The first thing that we see is that the Lord sends and they go. It's really quite simple. The Lord sends and they go. The Lord sends the apostles as his witnesses to Jerusalem to wait for his promises. And in verse 12, it says, then they returned to Jerusalem. Friends, that is the essence of discipleship. If you're a disciple of the Lord, then you have no other Lord as Lord, but the Lord. And when the Lord says, go to Jerusalem and wait, you go to Jerusalem and wait. That, that's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. He was very clear. They returned to, to Jerusalem. When they got there, they went up to the upper room. We're familiar with this. This is also where the Lord's Supper took place, where the Lord instructed them and and met them in this precious institution that we celebrate to this day. In verse 14, we're told, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Who are all of these? Well, in verse 13, he's just listed who all these are. These are the names of the Listen, key, 11 apostles. That's a problem because from Sunday school, perhaps you've been taught that there are 12, right? 12 disciples, 12 apostles, right? Except for one of them turned aside to go his own way. His name was Judas. And he betrayed Jesus, leading him to be arrested, betrayed him to his face. Now, though the emphasis of this passage is on the church gathered together, it is clear that God has appointed leaders for that church that has gathered gathered together. There were about 120 in all, but of that 120, 11 were leading them. In this case, it was the apostles who will lay down the foundational teaching about Christ and His gospel. And what are they doing? What are the leaders of the church leading the whole of the church in together? Well, as they wait upon the Lord, all these, in verse 14, follow along with me, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were devoting themselves to prayer. The promises of Jesus that he's given them. He's given them precious promises in recent days as he's been with them during the course of these 40 days following his resurrection, right? He's resurrected and appeared to them in many places and many times. 
And he's continued to instruct them and to give them promises, particularly about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the promises of Jesus and his command for them to wait spurred the disciples of Jesus on to one thing. And that one thing was prayer. Friends, that's us. It just described us. We are a people who have the promises of Jesus and have been commanded to wait for his return. What does that spur you on toward? Anxiety? Laziness? Presumption? Friends, this morning is an opportunity for us to consider the promises of God and consider the fact that we have been called to wait upon him in particular ways, a waiting that looks like working working on the foundation that he has laid in the gospel, I wonder, does that spur us on to be devoted to prayer to the one upon whom we wait? So let us clearly see the practical means of waiting. The practical means of waiting. What do you do while you wait on the Lord to appear in the in the sky, seen by all, for his church, to bring us to himself and to, to finally consummate his kingdom, right? That, that is the end for which we wait with longing. What is the functional, practical devotion of a people who are waiting for that? It is to be devoted together in prayer. Devotion to prayer is the first and primary work of waiting. It is the first and primary work of the church. Now, verse 14 says some things that I find to be quite precious. It said that all these were together, devoted to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It's important to note, first of all, that they are together. This is a heavy contrast to what had happened just days Weeks before, the scattering that took place after the crucifixion now has 120 of the disciples of Jesus all gathered together, crammed into an upper room, waiting in prayer. You know what that tells me? There are only a couple things that have changed from the scattered people running in fear and self-preservation to a people gathered boldly in the name of the Lord in prayer. And those things that have changed are the resurrection and the promise of Jesus. You know what that tells me? It tells me that the resurrection and the promise of Jesus are sufficient ground for the unity of the church. I'll say it again. The, the resurrection and the promise of Jesus are the sufficient ground. You don't need anything else than that. The sufficient ground for the unity of the church. I would argue, I've argued in the past, that to be grounded and unified in any other things is to be an unholy brood. No other grounds will accomplish the powerful witness that we see on display in the early church. None of our attempts to build a community. A people laboring to be together, a people laboring to be a community, is not sufficient grounds for the community. 
No similarity in our demographics. No hyped entertainment or attractiveness or excellence of our services are sufficient means for our unity. None of those are sufficient grounds or confidence for the church. The ground of the church's togetherness is a a community of the cross, of resurrection, of a people waiting for the promise of His return, a people grounded on the, what, the work that was accomplished on the cross and vindicated in the resurrection. Friends, what I'm telling you, you could summarize very simply, the ground of our unity is the gospel. When we say that we're gospel-centered, we're not trying to set ourselves off to the side as a, as a particular brand of the church. When we say that we are gospel-centered, we're saying that's all we got. And we believe that's all the church has ever had. And it's enough. If there is anything that is added to it, it's the fruitfulness of our God by His Spirit causing beautiful things to grow out of that precious blood-bought ground. So, that means that our prayer is together. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what the gospel accomplished. It accomplishes an our Father. John Calvin, I think, is going to continue to be helpful in his commentary on the book of Acts. John Calvin writes, Certainly, if we are to call God our Father, it is essential that we should be brothers and agree together as brothers. And on this, we can agree. The resurrection and the promise of His return is sufficient means for our unity. I would offer this illustration, just heard it recently, of a man who who claimed that he could be the church off on his own. That he really is a better disciple of Jesus off to the side, quietly worshiping. My guess is on, on a boat or a golf course, if I knew dudes at all who say things like this. And... As he makes this claim, the pastor says, okay, consider that charcoal grill right over there. He said, you can see those burning white hot coals. Let's take one of them and let's set it over here so it can be burning white hot on its own like you would claim. And you know what happens to a burning white hot coal when it's separated from the gathering. It was burning white hot for a little while, and it slowly loses its heat until it's just a lump of charcoal. While the gathering is set ablaze, so it's not just burning in white hot, but you can see the fire as the breath moves across it. Friends, that's the church. This is who we are by the ground of the gospel and the work of the Spirit in our midst. Now, It's important before we leave that verse to note who it is that is together. Look at it, right? Third time we've read it. They're together, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There are times in the history of the church that we have forgotten the clear and consistent teaching of the Scriptures. Christ has brought men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free into one body. And there they are, 120 of them together, devoted to one Lord in prayer, 
about to receive one spirit together. In each case, we've often viewed the the socially and often religiously lesser of these two in these pairings has often proved to be particularly faithful in holding to and pointing to Jesus in various times and places in culture and history. I, I wonder if there's something about God making the least of these something great to display His glory. If you read the Gospels, one thing should ring true. And that is the women were not only among the disciples, they are there in nearly every passage. They are not always the loudest voice, but they are very often even particularized as a faithful, devoted voice. I don't know the percentage of women to men in the upper room, and it does not matter. It's just statistics. What matters is that we thank God that He has made us together one. What a beautiful thing that our God has done to make those who were once far off and bring us near where? To Him in whom we find our hope, in whom we find our community. This is the ground of our unity, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we ought also make note of Mary alongside the 120 disciples. Now, let me be honest. There are many superstitions that have worked their way into the history of the church regarding both Mary and Peter. Some of you are familiar with what that has looked like in the history of the church. But Peter, who is uniquely one who stands up, right? You see him stand up in this passage, and in the passage next week, we see him stand up and preaching, even as all of the apostles were out preaching in the streets by the Spirit. And we see that Mary is uniquely called the mother of Jesus. But this does not mean that Peter is the father of the church, and that Mary is co-redeemer with Christ, as some have claimed. Peter and Mary and the women and the brothers are together in a room. The number 120. They are together disciples of the one Redeemer who is Jesus Christ, whose work it is to bring us to the one Father as His church with Christ as the head. We have to to remember some of these sometimes. And we can see it taking place right here in this simple, crowded room of a church devoted to the Lord in prayer. When the Lord sends His apostles, let us observe the business that undergirds their going. This is what we see in this first half of our passage this morning. We see that they gather the church together. That's essential. It happens over and over again. They gather with their leaders. There are leaders in the midst of the 120. They devote themselves to prayer. And as we will see, they submit themselves to the Word. This is what the church does when we are sent by our Savior. Now, there's a huge question mark that stands over really all of the book of Acts. And it goes like this. Is this passage descriptive or prescriptive? Let me explain what I mean. You know, sometimes when the the few things happen 
so many times over and over again in the scriptures, you begin to wonder, is this really just the description of a random series of events that happened in the early church? Or will we see that a properly constituted church is a church that gathers together with godly leaders submitted and devoted in prayer and the word? This is the essence of what it is to be a church. It's the essence of our life together. And it is the answer to the question earlier. This is the functional practice of the church with Christ as our head. That in every way, he would be the head of the church. The Lord sends and the disciples go. The second thing that we see is the Lord says and the church does. You see, there's an order to these things and it is a necessary cause and effect order to these things. The Lord says and they do. The Lord ascends to reign over His church from His heavenly throne and Peter stands up. Verse 15, look at it with me. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. A company of persons was in all about 120. Pay attention to the content of his speaking. What does Peter have to say? Is he like, oh man, I've been waiting for this moment. Jesus has finally ascended and I have a couple ideas. I'd like to run them by you. Um, and uh, it looks like we have quorum, so let's vote. Is that the content of Peter's message a prayer from the earliest days of entering the ministry as a pastor a, a, a good 15, 20 years ago, I, I prayed, may my words always be the words of the Word. There's one thing that any leader in the church has to say. And it's got to sound like an echo of what the Word has already said. Peter stands up and his words are, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. The, the movement of history is at times very confusing. Have you noticed that? The movement of the history even of your own life. Friends, there's not very many more confusing things than that one of the disciples of Jesus, that is Judas, a disciple of his own choosing, would turn and betray him to his face. I don't get that. I don't understand how that works. I don't understand divine providence taking place there, except for Peter stands up and says the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. And the fact that the Scriptures had to be fulfilled tells us that though the inner wisdom of God is often mysterious, in the big things of Scripture and in the, the things that take place so close in our lives, the inner wisdom of God is often mysterious. The fact is that there is a design to the events of history. And this is abundantly clear. What it is at times, I'm not sure, except for it will end in the glory of God and the good of His church. What is God doing in this? I often have to say, I don't know. In fact, rarely, even in retrospect, can I say hindsight is 2020? I'm like, hindsight is I still don't know. I really don't understand what was happening there. And sometimes it's not funny. Sometimes it's like, I don't, I really don't 
get it right now. And I don't foresee myself getting what in the world is happening right here, right? But the Scriptures had to be fulfilled tells me God is doing something in this. I don't know what He is doing, but God is doing something in this. The testimony throughout Scripture and history is absolutely, yes, He is. Praise be to God, the Scripture, the hidden decrees of God, the mysterious providence of God must be fulfilled, and it's to His glory and the good of His church. I'm going to situate myself there, following after the Master, situated as His church together with the community of the Gospel. Verse 16, it says this fascinating phrase, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Pay attention to the Bible's own testimony about itself. It's really fascinating. When you're reading a book and the book starts talking about the book, it, it, it's almost jarring when you notice what's happening. We have a book that's speaking about itself. And the Bible's own claims are that it is a testimony not merely of humans and about their own religious experiences and convictions or even the record of a good teacher, but they are the Spirit of God Himself revealing the character of God and the plan of God being worked out in real history. It makes sense then that 2 Timothy would bear this witness. It's a good witness to write in the margin of your Bible, right here in Acts 1.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, here's what becomes breathed out here. In verse 17 it says, For he, that is Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Numbered, I think, is a key word in that statement. Numbered is a key word here because Judas was literally counted among the what? Twelve, right? Not just one of those disciples, I don't know, 120 so in a room. He was counted among the twelve who would become apostles, right? The twelve apostles of Jesus, whose commission it is to bring the news of the gospel to the twelve tribes of Israel and on to the ends of the earth. I believe it is abundantly clear, and even if you look at Jesus talking about these things, that God, whatever He's doing here, He, he is bearing witness to the fact that the apostles are a continuation of the work of God among the people of God to be His witnesses. The apostles are not a new thing, like an 11 thing. They are kind of like the 12 thing. The business of the people of God in all times and places to bear witness to our God and His work in creation. They are His holy people a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 This is who Israel is. This is who the apostles are. And this is who the church is. Witnesses to His marvelous light. The excellencies of our great God. 
John Calvin helpfully points out that it's not merely the personal wickedness of Judas to seek the destruction of the Lord's anointed when he betrays Jesus. It's that, that Judas, in his betrayal and fall out of the number of the apostles, betrays the beauty of God's design in calling twelve. Peter here sees in the Scriptures an opportunity to restore what Satan sought to destroy. I mean, look at it. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Let another take his office. He sees in the Scriptures an opportunity to restore what God was revealing. But before we get too technical, let let us remember the nearness, the proximity of Judas to Peter and the rest who were gathered. This was a close companion who had recently fell to utter destruction. I, I won't even read the passage again. You can look at it there. The tragedy and the gore in these verses that follow is not a forensic description. It is a real pain that Peter and those who were gathered knew of someone they counted a brother and partner in the ministry. It's the man who was so recently numbered among us, Peter says. He shared in this ministry, he says. Friends, there are too many, too many, that I've known in in, in my life that in life and in ministry have fallen too far. This morning, the field of blood cries out to us again. And it reminds us of the tragic end of those who think that they know and follow after Jesus. But in reality, they they are following after an idol of their own imagination. This is the, the, the center of the tragedy. Judas ought to have known Jesus. He ought to have known Him. But the whole time he was with Jesus, he was fashioning a Jesus of his own design. And that is called idolatry. And eventually, every idol will crumble along with those who pursue Him. This time, it crumbled literally off of a cliff. Let us remember that the tragic end is not for those who are outside. You know those idolaters out there? Yeah, that didn't come to church this morning? Yeah? It's the inner circle that this came from. It is a faithful call, the field of blood, that reminds us Who is Jesus? What is His Gospel? And is He Lord? The object of my faith-filled pursuit. Now, Psalm 69 is where the first quote comes from. It is written. Psalm 69, verse 25. Psalm 109, verse 8 is the second of the quotes. Let another take his office. Both of these psalms focus on the enemies of the anointed of God being taken away, being removed from their position. Even the explanation that another will fill the office is a bit of a jab. Yeah, you're gone, and they found somebody to replace you. That's what those two verses combine to say to the enemy of the anointed of God. Now, one of the things that we learn from Peter's handling of these psalms, particularly the psalms of David, that they are supposed to be read with an eye toward fulfillment in the church and in the church's head who is Jesus. Now, go and read the psalms. Search the Scriptures. Reflect. Don't keep seeing like, 
you individually there in every verse, but see Christ there and you together with the church there. So, one of the men who has accompanied us, Peter says in verse 21. This is who we are to seek out, therefore. From John the Baptist to the resurrection. You know, back in John chapter 1, where we see John the Baptist going about his ministry by the Jordan, and he's gathering disciples right away. When Jesus appears on the scene, some of the disciples of John leave to go and follow after Jesus. And John says, yeah, that's right. I must decrease, he must increase, so be it. And one of those followers of John that became a follower of Jesus was named Andrew. He just happens to have a brother named Peter, and they follow after the Christ. John was clear, he must decrease, Christ must increase. I wonder though, how many of the disciples of John are still walking with the other disciples and made their way to this upper room? I mean, he had a huge following. We see many of them leave Jesus right there in John chapter 6. But in the next chapter, we will see many, perhaps even of those who were of wavering faith up to this point, who follow after the resurrected Christ on the basis of the testimony of the witness of the apostles. You know what that tells me? That this morning, if your faith is wavering, Today, if you hear your, His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, trust in the forgiving work of Jesus. Today. There's an important word. So often the most important words of the Scriptures are the smallest words in the Scriptures. I find that probably the most important word in the Psalms is one letter, O. Oh, my soul. We just sort of pass over it and keep singing it. But it's, oh, my soul. In this passage, probably one of the most important words is the first word of verse 21. So. You see, Peter, as a faithful apostle, finally, (laughs) hears the word and says so. So once Peter realizes that the Scriptures taught, he moved on immediately to obedience. Let me share this uh, particular compelling reason why we must be constant in the reading of Scripture and in prayer. We must be constant in the reading of Scripture and in prayer. John Calvin helps us. Therefore, let us always remember to think about what we have to do so that we may be ready to obey the Lord. Now, how does a disciple of Jesus think about what he must do? Close his eyes and meditate? Mm-mm. Opens up his eyes and reads. The words of the Lord are recorded for us. And if we ought to be busy reflecting and thinking about what we ought do so that we could be ready to obey, we ought to know what the Lord has said. We, cons- we consider the Scriptures. We meditate, yes, upon them, muttering them, remembering them, telling one another of them so that we could be also witnesses of the resurrection. You have this, this calling that the apostles have to be with the Christ from the Baptism of John through the witness to the resurrection. Why witness to the resurrection? 
not only because of what they saw, but because of what they must speak. The resurrection is the climactic vindication of the suffering of Jesus. It's the hope of our unity with Christ. It's life everlasting, right? The hope of redemption. The resurrection is the climactic content of the apostles' witness. Without the resurrection, the church is to be pitied. But with the resurrection, eternal life, hope of glory. We are a people, a people with hope, because we have a testimony that is borne by eyewitnesses about Christ, His person, His work, His resurrection, and the promise of His return. So what is an apostle? Jesus didn't write a book. I mean, you know that, right? Jesus didn't handwrite or transcribe a book. He could have, but he didn't. Jesus taught, but he didn't record his teaching. Instead, he wrote his words on the hearts of a select few, and then he commissioned them to make his word known throughout the world. And in the writing of the Scriptures, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is about to bring power to anoint the apostles publicly, these Scriptures are that record of the teachings of Jesus. They are the record of His good news, His gospel. An apostle is a witness to Christ and His Word. And the partners of the gospel, to this day, that is the church, you and I, continue this work by bearing witness to what we have heard from the eyewitnesses to Christ. We are devoted to the apostles' teaching, as we will see in a few weeks from now. The apostles' teaching, which is the teaching of the Christ. Now, a passage says that they put forward two, which is really quite interesting. I'm like, why? Like, just so one of them could feel bad? You know, <laughs> there, there are nicer ways to do this, it would seem. So, in verse 23, they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also Justice. I'm like, shoe in. Easy call. And the other guy's just Matthias. You know, doesn't even have other cool names that bear witness to the greatness of his deeds and faith. But the apostles, they put forward these two, the call of an apostle. It's unique in the church. The, an apostle is called direct of God. Peter and this church in the upper room felt confident from the Scriptures that their walk with Jesus was to put forth these two in accordance with the apostles' qualification and commissioning. But they did not feel qualified to make the explicit call. You see that? They get that there's qualifications, and there are two in their midst that meet these qualifications well, but they don't feel qualified to explicitly call one of the two. You see, a deacon, an elder, a teacher, any other service or officer in the church is both subject to the qualifications of Scripture and the affirmation of a local church. That's one of the reasons why Pastor Miguel wants to be a part of Cross Point Coast, because he doesn't want to be off on an island self-ordained. But rather, he, he wants to submit to the qualifications of the Scriptures sent by the affirmation of the church. 
But this isn't so of an apostle. While apostles do meet qualifications, as Peter described in this passage, their call and affirmation and authority comes directly from Christ. We see this as the apostles present themselves as called by God throughout their New Testament writings, including the apostle Paul, who refers to himself as an apostle abnormally born and whose work it is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. See, I, as a minister of the church, do believe that I'm called by God. I believe that this is God's work and will in my life, but that work and will are worked out through qualifications of Scripture, the exercise of wisdom, but also the sending of the church. My call is not directly from God. It's a commissioning and an ordination that I received as an affirmation of the church. I'm not an apostle. I don't carry the same authority of an apostle when I speak. Rather, I am devoted to the apostles' teaching with you alongside the whole of the revealed Word. The Apostle Peter calls out to the Lord because the Lord only knows the hearts of those who are gathered so that they ultimately cast lots in verse 26. So they cast lots, but note that they aren't just tossing dice. Like, I don't know which one to pick. I mean, one's got a bunch of names, but the other would be easy to call on, you know. But we've got enough mats around here, so maybe we'll go with the first one. And they aren't just tossing dice. They aren't just leaving things up to chance. They gathered together, devoted in prayer. They sought the Scriptures. They listened to the counsel of the church's leaders. And then they called out to the Lord explicitly. You know, one of the things that I love to watch, I love to watch this church wrestle with what is right and good and pleasing in the light of the work of the Spirit of God. I love seeing us wrestle with questions regarding wisdom. And as their minds are in line with the things of God, as evidenced by their concern for the Word of God and in prayer and unity with one another in this passage, the Lord is pleased to lead His church. And that gives me great confidence for Cross Point Coast and its leaders and its partnership together. I believe that we must be devoted to the Lord in word and prayer. And as we exercise wisdom in that place and from that foundation, the Lord will be pleased to lead His church, to fill us with His Spirit, that we would walk in a way that is glorifying to Him and good for His people. The summary of that whole section is this. The Lord says, the church does. That is the order of what it is to be disciples of Jesus. It says Peter is devoted to the Word with the church, that they discover what is wise in light of that Word and how they must act. Brothers and sisters, here's what this means. Very practical application. We must be a listening church. We must be a listening church if we are ever to be a faithfully doing church. And so I want to call us to that. I want to call us to seeking the Word. Maybe one of you are this morning like, I've never read the Psalms with an eye toward Christ and the church. I think I'm going to go listen to the Word. 
Listen to what is authoritative and can be evaluated together even in community. Not just listening to voices in my head, but by listening to words that are revealed that carry the authority of Christ and the inspiration of the Spirit. What if we listened together? What if we read Acts over and over again? We have the the Acts journal that are coming in the mail that we'll give out to you if you would like one. The the Acts journal with the the scripture on one page and, and a blank page on the opposite side that we could pay attention and listen together as we work our way through Acts. Friends, it's gonna it's gonna feel like work, but it is the work of waiting upon our Lord. Heavenly Father, we are confident that you will do what you do, that you are the Lord who keeps your promises. And so, Lord, we are confident that you will return for your people that you will glorify your name, that you will keep your church, and you will bring us to paradise. Lord, we believe that this is what you do. We've watched ourselves, and we're not particularly good at faithfulness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith. Where we, we know you, our faith is in you, we need you in order to increase in faith. And that as we increase in faith, we would increase in devotion in these two things, in the word and in prayer, as we will have that laid on us from these words from Acts over and over again. This is the consistent testimony of what is prescribed for your church. Thank you, Lord. We we trust you for that. And Lord, I pray that if there is one here who has heard your word but has not yet responded with faith, confession and repentance, Lord, that that heart would not be hardened any longer, but would believe, would would humble themselves in faith, confess their sin, receive the forgiveness that is in Christ, be transformed and walk with us together as the church. Thank you, Lord, that you have done this in so many. We pray that you would do it another, that another coal would be added to the fire and that your spirit would breathe the flame that we would be witnesses in this world. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in the name of Jesus, our one Redeemer who leads us to the one Father. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.